Sometimes filmmaking is likened to warfare. Fighting a constantly moving enemy, you have to factor in every element that could possibly go wrong. And after that, you still got to face the fact that you're likely being far too optimistic. The things that can't go wrong will go wrong, even after you're done. And yet, sometimes, through all that chaos and heartache, masterpieces are born. Some of the greatest cinematic achievements are the result of tantalising vision in the face of impending failure. Fritz Lang's Metropolis endured two years of principal photography. It took Satyajit Ray three years to film Pathapanchali. David Lynch spent five years shooting a razorhead. And as for eight and a half, Federico Fellini began filming without any script. Released in Germany on March the 4th, 1922, Nosferatu is one such film. And yet quite different because disaster struck not before or during production, but after its release. Either through negligence or willful destruction, it is estimated that over 75% of all films made before 1930 have been lost. However, Nosferatu's survival is owed not to chance, but acts of willful criminality. The problems arose from the film's very inception. Although the film bears an uncanny resemblance to Bram Stoker's Dracula, neither the film's director, F.W. Murnau, nor his producers, Alban Grau and Enrico Diekmann, secured the film rights from Stoker's estate. The trio reckoned that by changing the story's title, the lead characters' names, excising minor characters and their corresponding subplots, shifting the time frame from an authentic 1890s London back to a fictitious Wiesberg in the 1830s, they would move their work beyond any claims of copyright infringement. They thought that because Murnau had already done it before. Two years earlier, he had taken Robert Louis Stevenson's posthumously published The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and put it on screen as The Head of Janus, which is now sadly one of the hundreds of thousands of lost films. When confronted with that infringement claim, Murnau simply settled with the Stevenson estate. Mrs. Bram Stoker, however, was far more resolute. Her late husband's novel had earned him considerable praise, but very little money. Since its publication in 1897, the Gothic novel had sold nearly 30,000 copies each year. But because of his long-standing debts, most of the royalties bypassed Stoker and went directly to the publisher. So when he died in financial straits in 1911, Mrs. Stoker was in need of an income. And with this newfangled entertainment called cinema, she had been hoping to attract Hollywood's interest. So as soon as she got wind that an unauthorised German version had already been released, she sued Grau and Diekmann. By that stage, however, their company had collapsed. So Mrs. Stoker petitioned the German courts to have all copies of the film burned. The courts agreed and ordered that all prints were to be, just like the vampire, hunted down and destroyed. In that respect, Nosferatu shares kinship with the most unexpected of films. Lucina Visconti's Ossessione is based on James M. Cain's classic crime novel The Postman Always Rings Twice, where Nora Papadakis conspires with her lover Frank Chambers to murder her husband Nick. In bringing it to the screen, Visconti, just like Murnau, changed the title. 
but when the film was presented in May of 1943, it was promptly banned by the Italian censor, on the grounds that it undermined the nation's moral fibre. Mussolini's fascist regime was so outraged by the content that it ruled that all prints of the film were to be burned. However, Visconti had anticipated such an order and managed to shuttle into hiding a duplicate negative, so the film was saved. Or so Visconti thought. After the war ended, Visconti sought to distribute Ossazione in the United States. However, a major stag was the fact that Visconti, again just like Murnau, had failed to secure the film rights. And by that stage, even if he had sought to retroactively negotiate some sort of agreement with Kane, it wouldn't have mattered. MGM were already in production on their own, authorised adaptation. So, the US courts ruled that due to Visconti's violation, Ossessione was not to be screened outside of Italy until after Visconti's death. Which means that for decades the only film version on offer was the rather chaste and sedate adaptation starring Lana Turner and John Garfield. I don't especially like the way I look sometimes, but I never met a man since I was 14 that didn't want to give me an argument about it. Sure. By the time Nick came along, well, he were ready to marry anybody that owned a gold watch. It seemed the best thing to do, from my angle. And as for him, I, I told him. I told him I didn't love him. He said that would come in time. Yeah. But it didn't. But Nosferatu has another, even greater half-sibling, Orson Welles's Citizen Kane. When newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst got wind that the Orkeo production was loosely based on his life, he threatened all of Hollywood, informing the studios that if the film were released, he wouldn't carry any ads for any of their films in any of his newspapers. So MGM head Louis B. Mayer offered Orkeo over $800,000, the entire cost of Citizen Kane, if they would agree to burn the negative. But Orkeo chief George A. Schaefer resisted and one of cinema's greatest achievements was saved from the furnaces. Now tell me honestly, my boy, don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise, this inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. For Nosferatu, however, it was not a single case of resistance that saved it, but rather cases of willful criminality. Several German exhibitors and distributors defied the court order by not only hiding away their copies, they made sure to spirit the reels out of the country. So it is to those unlawful actions that cinema owes an incalculable debt of gratitude. Bram Stoker's Dracula is a character that assumes many forms to evade capture and escape death. But for most audiences today, his abiding image is of a dangerous, yet rather urbane, impeccably dressed, heavily accented figure who carries himself with an aura of age-old chivalry. He may be mysterious, but he is also courteous, a gentleman. Harmless apologies, sir. Forgive my ignorance, sir. I am... Uh... You recently arrived from abroad, and I, I do not know your city. It's a beautiful lady. You may purchase a street atlas for sixpence. Good day. I have offended you. I am only looking for the cinematograph. I understand it is a wonder of the civilized world. If you seek culture, 
Then visit a museum. London is filled. Excuse me. Murna's vampire could hardly be further removed from Gary Ullman's decidedly tragic figure. In adapting Stoker's novel, Nosferatu screenwriter Henrik Gallin stripped away all sense of civility the Count had, and instead wrote up a monstrous creature of such shocking proportions that his very being manifested an army of rats. It must be remembered that while Stoker wrote his novel at the end of the Victorian era, just as London was reaching a peak of ostentation, Nosferatu was written in the wake of World War I. Galeen had served in the German army and had seen firsthand the horrors of the Eastern Front. But by the time he began tackling Stoker's novel, something worse had emerged from the ashes of the war, the Spanish flu. However disastrous the war may have been, the Spanish flu claimed twice as many lives. People spoke of it as if the Black Death were returning, and it was from within such a deep sense of dread that Nosferatu was conceived. Thinking themselves free of copyright, the filmmakers took great liberty to reimagine Stoker's novel because they believed theirs would be the first time the already legendary character would appear on screen. But again, they were wrong. While Murno and his crew were in production, a Hungarian feature, Dracula's Death, was released. Directed by Karoli Lachte and starring Eric Vanko in the title role, the film is, again, now considered lost. But even if a surviving print were to be discovered, it is hard to imagine it being anywhere near as startling as Murnau's vision. To get a measure of how radical a realisation Nosferatu is, just look at the landscape of the genre and you will see that every vampire film since has lived in its shadow. <clears throat> Enshrined in the most elite echelons of film canons, amongst the greatest German expressionist films, amongst the greatest silent films, amongst the greatest horror films, Simply put, Nosferatu stands amongst the greatest films. For his lead, Murnau cast the suitably named Max Schreck, an actor whose limited fame at the time owed more to his stage appearances than to his film work. But no matter how famous or obscure Schreck may have been, by the time Murnau put him in front of the camera, no one, not even Frau Schreck, would have recognised him. To begin, Murnau had Schreck shave his head. Then, heavy makeup left his skin so white, it is as if we are looking directly through to the skull, which is why his eyes appear so sunken. Above those darkened sockets are eyebrows so bushy, they resemble writhing grey caterpillars. Nosferatu's mouth is a yawning cave at the front of which hang, sharpened and bucked fangs. Next, spindly fingers are finished off by even longer nails that resemble the talons of some carnivorous bird. And finally, with large pointed and protruding ears, Nosferatu looks less like a human and more like a rodent, the very creature that carried the fleas that spread the Black Death. In the year 2000, E. Elias Merhija directed Shadow of the Vampire, a fictionalised account of Nosferatu's arduous production. Not taking the same liberties Murnau took with Stoker's novel, Merhija nonetheless conjured a drama that exaggerated, to the point of mythology, the making of the film. Starring John Malkovich as a highly temperamental Murnau, it was Willem Dafoe's portrayal of Max Schreck, whom the film dishonestly depicted as a real-life drinker of human blood, that earned the film its best reviews. 
Defoe's performance also secured one of the film's two Oscar nominations, the other going to makeup artists Anne Buchanan and Amber Sibley. There you are. <laughs> it's incredible, no? I wish you could all see your faces. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Max Schreck, who will be portraying our vampire, Count Orlok. As you no doubt have heard, Max's methods are somewhat unconventional, but I am sure you will come to respect his artistry in this matter. Another reason why Nosferatu is so venerated today is because, even though cinema was then barely over two decades old, Murnau's vision reimagined an entire genre. Horror reached an early peak through German Expressionism, and it was that art movement that set the template for the category. In quick succession, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Der Golem, From Morn to Midnight, and Destiny had established a custom of studio-bound productions where the sets, costumes, lensing and lighting were arranged to reject realism and replace it with exaggeration and distortion. In reaction to that movement, however, Murnau took the legend of the vampire, dragged him out of the studio and placed him in the real world. To the utter consternation of his producers, Murnau insisted shooting on location in Slovakia. This at a time when other directors, Fritz Lang, Robert Weiner, Paul Wegener, Stellan Rai and Karl Böse were each constructing villages and entire forests on sound stages. But Murnau was not going for realism. By shifting the time frame to the 1830s, he was hearkening back to German Romanticism. While he was in college in Heidelberg, Murnau had studied art history and the paintings of Anton Georg Zwengauer, Karl Spitzweg, Johann Christian Dahl, and especially Caspar David Friedrich, bear a heavy influence on Nosferatu's look. Where Expressionism placed the characters indoors, surrounded on all sides by jagged angles and sharp edges, Murnau composed his frame so that whether indoors or outside, his characters felt alone. Very alone. Terribly alone. But here is the thing. There is another look in the film that is even more disturbing. Cinematographers Fritz Arno Wagner and Gunter Krampf lit the vampire so his eyes, already sunken and shrunken, are eerily visible. They have to be, because at certain times, Nosferatu stares straight at the camera. Ordinarily, this would break the fourth wall, but the result here is that those beady eyes suck the viewer into the same space as the vampire. It's a technique Jonathan Demme deployed almost 70 years later. Well, I've read the case files, have you? Everything you need to find him is right there in those pages. And tell me how. First principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Read Marcus Aurelius. Of each particular thing, ask, what is it in itself? What is its nature? What does he do, this man you seek? Beyond Shrek's performance, by far the most iconic Dracula is Bela Lugosi. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Where Shrek was horrific, Lugosi was magnetic, romantic, and a little bit ironic. Since then, we've had, amongst others, Lon Chaney Jr., John Carradine, Louis Jordan, Christopher Lee, Peter Fonda, Franklin Gala, and Klaus Kinski. In 1979, Kinski played the role 
in Werner Herzog's critically lauded Nosferatu the Vampire, an authorised adaptation of both Stoker's novel and Murnau's film. Dying is cruelty against the unsuspecting. But death is not everything. It's more cruel not to be able to die. While Kinski's vampire is suitably murine, for me, the greatest Dracula will always be Jerry Nelson. How do you do? He decide the count, yes. <laughs> they call me the count because I love to count things, yes. And today I'm going to tell you about my favorite part of the body. <laughs> 